This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. And again, a special uh, thank you for everyone here who made it out in this blizzard of, uh, what was it? I guess the 2018 blizzard. We'll see. Hopefully this will be the 2018 blizzard and we can move on with this. Um, so today we are beginning a new series, a very, very important series. I, I cannot stress the importance of this. This is going, we're going to be dealing with this in, uh, it's going to be like one large series, but uh, but it's going to be a few mini-series within this large series. So the first thing that we're going to try to tackle is, can we prove that God exists? The reason why this is so important is that I have many people that come over to me and they'll be like, I don't believe in the Torah. I, the rabbis made it up. Um, you know, and all different sort of things like, this is, a, is this from the private Ten Commandments? Is this part of this? They break it down. So the first thing before you can even deal with any of that, and the way my method is, is I ask them, okay, let's take a step back over here. Do you believe in God? Because that's the first thing. If you don't believe in God, then the Torah mix is irrelevant. The rabbis are irrelevant. Everything is irrelevant. So the first step is, do you believe in God? The Once we can believe in God, then we can move on and prove the Torah. But right now, the focus is to uh, see if we can prove that there is a God. The idea behind these classes is not only to give you such a strong understanding that there is a creator without a benefit of your doubt, but rather also to give you the abilities to also be able to do this to other people, to be able to go and convince other people of this, uh, uh, that there is a God. Now the reason why, so the method, the way I'm going to present this, Bizlat Hashem, is first I'm going to give you a few classes on proving that there's a God, then there's going to be classes proving that the Torah is real, and after that, we're going to sort of summarize it in layman's terms and how to use it in practical, uh, in practical, you know, back and forth conversation. So, as we begin, we first have to figure out, is it possible to prove God? When you think of God, God is not a physical being. So how can we prove something? We're physical beings. How can we prove something that's not physical? So, this will inhibit our direct proof. We will not be able to directly prove God. I can prove to you that this remote exists, because you see it, I'm holding it, you can touch it, there's all, your senses are able to deal with this. The, is a different method, there is an indirect, there's an indirect proof, which is the method that we're going to go and try to uncover and try to see if we can prove that God exists. Now, if you were going to say, well, okay, indirect proof is nice, but I need absolute proof. I want absolute proof. So, when you look at our day-to-day lives, nothing, and almost nothing, that we do is with absolute proof. I'll give you an example. When you go into a car, do you know with 100% certainty that you will reach your destination? You don't know. Maybe there's going to be a flat tire, God forbid there's going to be an accident, God forbid there's going to be so many other different things that can happen. You get a phone call and you have to turn around. You don't know for certain if you go and you're about to eat a certain food. Not sushi, because the sushi is great, I'm sorry. But let's say you're about to eat pizza. Do you know for certain that this pizza is not going to give you uh, food poisoning? You don't know for certain. I mean, you're hoping that it won't, but you don't know with absolute proof that it won't give you any... Um, any food poisoning. You have a Khatan and Kala, they're getting married. Do they know for certain this marriage is going to last? Let's say hopefully they didn't look at statistics and see what is actually going on there. But do they know? They hope that it will last, but they don't know for certain. So we see our day-to-day decisions. You go to anything, taking a medication. You're taking a medication. Do you know that this medication is going to do better, better good for you than, than worse harm? You don't know what, what the outcomes of these things that could happen, but yet we take it. So now why do we take it? We, there's something called probability. The, and this is how we make our decision based, is based off one of two factors. Number one is the probability. What is the probability of this happening, of the bad versus the good? So, and we'll choose the, the probability with the greater 
um, chance of achieving our desired outcomes. There is that aspect of it, and there's also another aspect on the severity of the consequences. So let me give you an example into play. Let's say somebody is, you know, is, is driving, and they have two ways to get to their destination. If they go down one road, they'll get there an hour shorter, but there's a 20% chance that they are going to come out of that after they leave this, this road, they're not going to have tires, they're not, their glasses are going to be broken, they are going to be, you know, you know, chance of survival is, you know, 80%. We'll do a bit of that. The other is 99%. What is the chances that they're going to take the 20% versus the, you know, the 99%? Everybody's going to, in the right state of mind, will go on the safer option rather than going on something, even if it's going to save you time. It's just not worth it. Why? Because of the severity of it. The severity is losing your tires, getting hurt, you know, damaging your car. It's just not worth it. But let's use the same numbers in a different scenario. Let's say you want to go uh, to the park. And you know if you go to the park, you're going to get beaten up by mosquitoes. And if you go to the park, and you, if, let's say you really want to go to the park, and you know it's a 50, even a 50% chance to get beaten by the mosquitoes. If you really want to go, you'll go. Why? Because the consequences doesn't mean as much as me losing my car versus getting a few mosquito bites. So the, the, the idea over here is when we look at it, we have to see what is the probability of God existing and also what is the severity of the consequences if we don't believe in God. Does this make sense so far? Is this clear? Okay, good. I will say that a few times throughout this, throughout this class, this Hashem, because there's going to be a lot of scientific, uh, scientific information that I will present today. Uh, it will almost feel as if you are learning science, and it sort of is. But I'm going to try to do it in a very simple to understand manner, because it's very important to understand this. One of the reasons why we're going to go into such detail, especially when we speak about the Big Bang, uh, is that when people go, I have these conversations a lot with people, atheists, and I do air quotes and I say atheists, and you'll soon see why, they'll throw out things, well, God doesn't exist, and they'll throw out things like the Big Bang. And I'm like, do you know what the Big Bang is? And they'll go, yeah, it was a huge explosion, and that's how the world came to be. I'm like, you're already wrong, because according to the science, it's not even talking about a large explosion, it's talking about an expansion. So by you understanding where they're coming from, you'll even know how to answer them before even the question arises. Because most of them don't even know what they're talking about. But there's some that do, and this is what we're going to go through. So now, the holy rabbi by the name of Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz said that deciding if you will believe in God is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. The most important, because this is going to factor in how you will live your life. So this comes to play a very, very important factor. If you believe in God, then, okay, then there's obviously, there's, well, as we see as we go on in the series, there are different things, like why would God create the world? What is the purpose of creation? There's different things that come into play. So when this comes up, your life that you will live in this world is going to be completely different as if you don't believe in God. So this is a very, very important thing, and you should not, and it should not be taken lightly. And in fact, I'm going to tell you, forget about everything that you were raised, forget about everything that you were born with, even if you believed it, you didn't believe it, well, the way that we're going to do it, Bezat Hashem, is going to give you so much confidence that God exists, that there's going to be no other way to believe it, rather than saying that there's 100% understanding and confidence that I believe that God exists. Believe is not a word, that I know that God exists. So, moving along, question is, is why isn't God more visible? Why isn't God more easily known to man? God is hidden, a spiritual entity. Why can't we see Him, the, the, this, this being that created us, why can't we see Him? Why can't we see Him in the physical aspects of it? So, when we look at human beings, we know that we are limited in our, uh, in our abilities, based because we are limited in our number of s- sensations. To give you an example, we, if I were to say to the majority of people, 
to do this multiplication in a few seconds. Let's see how many people are going to be able to do it without writing, even writing anything down. 967 times 498. I'm multiplying two three-digit numbers. Not a crazy, crazy thing. How many people are going to be able to do it? There are some people that are going to be able to do it. Majority of human beings are not going to be able to do it in a matter of seconds. You give them a minute or two, they'll be able to do it. So the question that arises from this and really brings us into, into consideration is if we have a hard time making a simple calculation in a matter of seconds, then what makes us think that we will be able to understand God, this spiritual being, this all-powerful being that doesn't, that doesn't, we don't understand in our, in our physical terms. So when we want to understand God, be like, you don't even understand this world. We don't understand this world. You want to understand God? So there's, there's an idea of understanding God, and there's an idea of knowing that God exists. Our focus is going to be, do you know, and can you know that God exists? So, we will look at, this is very, very important. Uh, um, I came in here, um, and there was a table set up here full of food. Now, is it possible that, you know, the mafia broke in here uh, right before everybody came, said it, they heard that there's going to be a class and it's so snore, they'll be like, you know what, that's so nice. They'll be like, you know what, it's so nice, you know, we'll do something nice about it. And they come in, they broke in, and they set everything up, they closed the lights, they came and they left, and they turned on the heat, and, because we don't know how the heat turned on, right? Maybe it was the mafia. So they came in here, they turned it on, and they put everything nicely, and then they left. Is that a possibility? Yes. It's a possibility, right? Now, is it the most probable reason? No. So there's a difference between the possible answer to things and a probable answer to things. What we want to look for, and this is very important, today we're going to look for the probable answer for things, not the possible answer for things. Possible answers for things could be anything. I can make it up out of, you know, out of the blue, uh, you know, a thousand different possible, uh, possible answers. But we're going to be looking for the most probable answers. Okay. So, almost finished the introduction, and then we can begin. Almost finished. There's another aspect that we do need to discuss, and that is the aspect of emotions. There are some people that emotionally won't allow them to believe in God. They, their emotions doesn't allow it. I once had an argument. I was once giving a class. It was a nice amount of uh, people in the class. And there was one guy who uh, stood up there right, more or less in the beginning of the class and started asking questions. From the questions, I could see that he didn't believe in God, didn't believe in Torah. You know, there was some like thing. So I asked him straight out, do you believe in it? And he replied in the negative. So for the next hour and a half to two hours, the whole class, everything that I prepared, put on the side. And it was one-on-one, -on -one, back and forth, with everybody listening, on proving, does, is there a God? Is there a Torah? I did this multiple times. Is there a God? Is there a Torah? Is there... Because I feel this is the most important thing. If I, you don't get this, what is the point of anything else? I may have given in maybe about 15 to 20 proofs about God, Torah, the oral, all the rabbis, like everything in the whole package. After we finish the one and a half hours, so it was maybe it's probably closer to two hours conversation, or you could say argument. Uh, he comes over to me and he's like, uh, in front of everybody, so he's like, "You see, I won the argument." So I go, I reply back to him. I'm like, "There's in an argument, there's never winners or losers. You know, there's always losers in an argument. But if you really think that you won, let's ask the audience. Right? We have here a nice audience. Let's ask. And I say by a raise of hands, how many people think that this person won the argument? No one raised their hands. And then I said, by raise of hands, how many people think that I won the argument? And again, it's not me, it's just the, the responses that I gave. And majority of people raised their hands. Of course, there's always people that never, hands, never raise their hands for anything. You know, there's people that never raise their hand for anything, and then there's people that raise their hands for every answer. You know, how many people believe no? How many people believe yes? You know, they just want to be right. I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not taking any chances. Um, so, 
the so I go to him. I'm like, I'm like, you see, and then. As a follow-up to that, I said, let's go over a brief overview. And I did all the highlights of all the proofs that I gave him. I'm like, do you believe in this for this reason, this reason, this reason? I gave him one after another, proving God, proving the Torah, all the aspects, which we'll, we'll go through most of the majority of those things in these uh, coming up classes with Zlat Hashem. The, um, and one by one, he was like, okay, I have to get back to you on that. I am not sure on that. I'm like, you never answered me on this. You never answered me. You never answered. He's like, okay. I have to get back to you on some of the things. And uh, um, he actually did get back to me on a few things. All was nonsense and irrelevant, but he actually did look into it. The, it turns out that this guy later ended up coming to uh, almost every single one of my classes for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. First one to come, last one to leave. And Is he religious now? Well, Is he religious yes. Now? Yes, he is. So, um, but what is the reason that after this whole argument, that it was very obvious to everybody else that the proofs were there, it's there, the, the, the science is there, how come he couldn't see it? And the answer is, is because of his emotions. He did not emotionally want to believe in it. He didn't emotionally, whatever he went up his upbringing, whatever the, the background situation was, he didn't want to believe in it. Now, when you're dealing with emotions, logic doesn't come into play. You can't, you can't deal with logic when emotions come into play. That's why I say it's very important whenever you say you're dating somebody, it's always very, very important that when you're making a decision, it has to be with logic. It also has to be with emotions, but number one has to be with logic. So, the idea for that is put your emotions on the side, whoever doesn't believe in God, whoever does that, and let's see really what, where the science points into. And in fact, those type of people that have such a strong emotional attraction to not believing in God, God could come to them while they're awake and be like, hey, I'm God, and watch this miracle. And watch this miracle. You know what they're going to say? I was hallucinating. You know, someone gave me some shrooms about a week ago. It only took effect now. Um, and then they're going to say this was really a natural disaster. There's excuses for everything. You know the excuses for the ten plagues, the excuses for that, for, for all these things. There are people that document that say, oh no, there was a natural disaster. The Jews have to be the right place at the right time in that direction. I mean, come on. Alright, how much do you need to like smack in your face until you be like, okay, I see it. The question also arises is, what is the purpose of all this? Do we actually need to believe in God? Is there a purpose? Is there a need? So without God, if you think about it, without God, without the Torah, there is no purpose to the world. It's a free-running world. You do whatever you want after, you know, a hundred and whatever, however, you know, atheists believe they live for, and they go and they die. And what happens after that? Nothingness. That is such a depressing thing to think of. Like, even... And by the way, there are people that don't believe in God and don't believe in anything. They could still be good people. They could still abide by moral and ethical laws, but they're doing everything for no purpose. Like, there's no purpose. And even more, even more so is any happiness that they, that they feel, it's all short-lived. Because soon it's going to be over, soon it's going to be done, and that's it. It's such a depressing way to live your life. It's a, it's a, it's everything good is, om, is only momentarily, and it's only soon vanishing. Now, if you're living for a purpose that even, by the way, even if it's for a fake purpose, you can think of any religion. Doesn't you could believe in aliens? Like after you die over here, you get beamed up by aliens and you party like it's 1999. And uh, you know it's just like great with the aliens. But there's a purpose. All you have to do is wear tennis shoes. I don't know if you guys get that joke. Okay, so um, the, the, I'm going to laugh anyway. So okay. <laughs> there was never mind. Let's not get into that. So, maybe afterwards. Yeah. Okay. It was a cult. Anyways, so the the idea is that if you live for a purpose, your life on this world is already more enjoyable, more purposeful, and more fulfilling. The idea is, think of it like this. There was a guy in prison, 
and uh, for 25 years. And what he had to do for 25 years is he had very hard work. He had to pull levers. He had to turn a wheel. He had to do a lot of manual labor. And he's thinking, he's like, you know what? This is like, who knows what I'm doing? I'm probably like giving enough electricity for an entire, you know, country over here from all the work that I'm doing. After he gets out, he gets free from prison for, after 25 years, he goes to the garden and is like, do me a favor. You know, I've been pushing all these levers, all these buttons. I'm turning this huge wheel behind. What's behind this wall? Can I see what's behind this wall? The guard says, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll take you there. And he goes to the behind the world and it's nothing. He's just turning a lever, pushing buttons. There's nothing doing on behind the wall. It's not attached to anything. And he falls into depression. And the guard says, I understand why you're depressed. You're, you're free. You, you're gone to live your life. And he says, you don't understand. He says, for the past 25 years, I thought I was doing something. He says, I didn't realize I was turning a wheel that was nothing was happening on the other side. He says, why'd you make me do this? So I wasted 25 years doing nothing. He says, listen, you know, if you're bored, you cause problems. Here, you, you keep you busy, you know, we'll make you run on the wheel. So if you're doing something without any purpose, without any fulfillment, it's very depressing. You don't live a fulfilling life. So that is why you need to believe in God. So now there are three possibilities in the realm of believing in God or not believing in God. Number one is believing in God. Number two is something called agnostic. Agnostic means that you view the existence of God as unknown or unknowable. I don't know. He could exist. He could not exist. Uh, who knows? There's a third option called atheism. Atheism means for sure God doesn't exist. Out of the three, the third, which is atheism, is irrational. It's irrational and it's borderlining on moronic. And I'm using harsh terms for a specific reason. When you, when you look at, you know, ju just think about being rational for a second. To know for certainty that God does not exist, to, let's even back it up. To know for certainty that something does not exist, anything does not exist, you have to know everything that does exist. Because how can you say this doesn't exist if you don't know everything else that exists? Can you say, let's say I say there's an insect with uh, three feet on the bottom, three feet on the top, like feet on all angles. That's all it has, insect with three feet. You say, no, no such thing, it doesn't exist. How do you know? Do you know all insects? Maybe it does exist. How do you know that it does exist? To say that God does not exist means that you need to know everything that does exist. Do you know everything that exists? No, you don't know everything that exists. So how can you say with a straight mind that God does not exist and being an atheist with, uh, with, without, any, without knowing everything that does exist? You know, well, m many people make themselves uh, fools when President, now President Donald Trump, when Donald Trump was running for president, he, uh, there was a large amount of people that came out, celebrities, you're talking about like politicians, uh, I don't know what they're called, news broadcasters, uh, anchors, that said, thank you, that said that Donald Trump will never be president. And they said it with such arrogance, such gahava, such, you know, confidence, they'll be like, look at me, no, <coughs> Donald Trump will never be president. Said in the camera with such like, ever and this was included, uh, you know, uh, President, uh, you know, ex-president, old president Barack Obama. Yeah, Allah shalom, right? So, um, you, you have, you have this, you know, yeah, the, they have it with such, now what happens when President Donald Trump became president? How much do these people get embarrassed? These people who happen to know all about politics, who know, they're like, these are the celebrities of the, everything I do. And they were so wrong. Like, how, with such confidence, how could, you know how embarrassing that is? What is the bullshit that they had to go through, the embarrassment that they had to go through? Imagine someone lives their life, there's no such thing as God. I've had conversations with people that are, that are atheists. They're not really atheists, they think they're atheists. But they're like, they're like, really, like, there's no such thing as God. What happens after 120? Like, I, you know, like, after 120, they're going to get up there, you look around, and be like, oh, huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, huh, yeah, I, uh, 
I, uh, I guess I was wrong. Oh, oops. You know, I, you can't, there's no oops after that. Like that, you, you know, according to Rambam, you lose your share to the world to come. There, there's no like, there, there is, there's no like, oh, yeah, all right, you got me. Like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, I just, you know, messed it up. I didn't realize. I, I don't know. That is a big boo-boo to make, saying that living your life, that God doesn't exist. When it turns out like, oh, look at that. God does exist. So there are, you know, when, when dealing with atheists, you have to know that there's a few things. Number one. Um, when I said before, many atheists don't know that they're atheists because I, you know, many atheists happen to be agnostics. Agnostic means I'm not sure. Because I tell them, I'm like, you know, they describe them as, hi, you know, I'm an atheist. You know, like, hi, everybody. You know, he's an atheist. Um, you know, atheist, AA, you know, uh, atheist anonymous. So, uh, uh, they go, uh, you know, they go in claiming that they're atheist. And I say, I'm like, is there like a 5% chance that God exists? And they're like, you know, five percent. <laughs> All right, fine, five percent. I'm like, so you know, you have to, you, you know, what you identify yourself, right? If if you're checking off, you know, like, wh- you know, when they ask you, like, in many like legal papers, what race are you are in? If you have to go to somebody else and be like, hey, what do I look like? You know, am I Asian style? Am I Caucasian? And like, you should know what you identify yourself with. I don't want to get to transgender right now because I'll be in it for a long time. But you have to know how you identify yourself. Regardless of what you have to know, if, if you're identifying yourself as an atheist, do you know what an atheist is? So you're not an atheist, you're a agnostic. At least, we're, you know, we already moved up in life. You know, already you, now you have a doubt maybe that God exists. So most people, most atheists happen to be their agnostics. Uh, the other people that are atheists, they're atheists because they're rebelling. It's an emotional attack against God. Why? It could be, I don't know, why did bad things happen to good people? And well, hopefully Bezalel Shem will deal with it. We spoke about this in previous classes. But, uh, um, you know, what type of God is there if there is constantly bad happening to good people and constantly good things happening to bad people? So these are all reasons, excuses, you know, emotions that come into play. But let's look at facts. Let's look at facts. That was the introduction. Now we can begin. Okay. So now let's try to begin with the Big Bang. Uh, it's, I'm going to try to explain the Big Bang Theory. And then once we explain it, we can see where it leads to. Does it lead to God, or does it lead to no, uh, you know, the fact that there is no God? So, the Big Bang Theory is an effort to explain what happened at the very beginning of our universe. Now, discoveries and recent discoveries in astronomy and physics, they show beyond reasonable doubt that our universe, in fact, had a beginning. So, before the beginning, during the beginning, that's what the Big Bang is trying to explain. Now, bear with me for the next... 35 seconds, because it's, things might sound foreign, but bear with me. The standard theory of the Big Bang Theory, they, they base something called, something called singularity. Singularity, if you ask them, no one knows what singularity is. But it's called singularity, and you'll soon see why. What they say is, is that this singularity is something that defies our current understanding of physics. It is thought to exist in the core of black holes, which in black holes are these this areas of intense gravitational pressure. It's so much gravity in there, that if you would put a finite matter... In it, it would actually squish, it would actually dense into infinite density. Now, what it means is that it would take something and it would, it would com- combine it into such, you know, such c- compact matter that we, we can't even understand it. They say this is how our universe began. Our universe began very, very compact. Very, like, all matter that we know was all in one singularity. It was all in one single, in one single uh, uh, piece of matter. And it was very hot. And it was very small. And it was very, very dense. Now, where did it come from? How did it come from? Where did it go? Cotton Eye Joe? No one knows. Uh, no one knows these. No, no one knows these. Uh, these. Uh, these answers. But this is how they explain it. So, 
What happened is, is that this infinite dense matter started to inflate. It sort of expanded. A very big misconception about the Big Bang Theory is that there was an explosion. According to the science, according to the majority of the scientists, the, um, the, the common theory now is there was no explosion. It was just an expansion and then a cooling off, and that's where we are today is because of this expansion. The world was created on that or the universe? The universe. The entire observable known universe. So, is there proof for the Big Bang? Um, you know, a lot of this is based off of, you know, Rabbi Lawrence Kellman did phenomenal research on this, and I want to share with you some of his uh, data that he presented. There was a man by the name of Vesto Slipher. In 1913, he discovered that a group of stars were moving away from Earth at about 700,000 miles per hour. And when he started searching other galaxies, he saw the same thing, that all the galaxies were seem to be moving away from Earth. And at that same time, Einstein was formulating his theory of relativity. And his theory had a few glitches. And in fact, uh, you know, a Danish mathematician by the name of William D. Sitter uh, was the one of the few that he actually detected these glitches. And he told Einstein, and he said, listen, he said the only way that this, you know, theory of relativity would work is only if the entire universe is exploding, is expanding from all directions from a central point. Then in 1922, that was in 1913, in 1922, a Soviet mathematician by the name of Alexander Friedman independently derived a Sitter solution. The same solution that, there, that with the explosion, with the, with the moving of the, of the stars, of the galaxies. But due to the fact that it was World War I at the time, neither De Sitter, no, no Friedman, they, they knew that Vesto, uh, Vesto Slipher was identifying these things. So they knew that in order for Einstein's theory of relativity to work, this had to be happening. The, the, entire, the entire universe had to be expanding. But they didn't know that it existed. They didn't know that they didn't know that the, this evidence was found already due to the World War One. Now, when Einstein was was you know heard of this idea, he was very disturbed by this. He was very disturbed at the fact that the universe is expanding. Why was he disturbed? Because if the universe is expanding, that means the universe had a beginning. Now, if Einstein didn't believe originally in this theory, what didn't believe in? How did the people used to believe? How did the world come into being? If you go, so there's three theories that we're going to discuss on how the world, the universe, I'm sorry, came into being. Um, or and better yet, not came into being, but how, how is the universe in its state? There is one, the first one, is something called a static universe or a steady state. This means the universe is stationary. Which means is, it always was and it always will be as is. It just is as it is right now. Uh, this theory could say that there is no God. There could be a God, there could not be a God. It was always was here. It always was here for billions and billions and trillions and an infinite amounts of time. It always was and it always will be. Could be there was a God, could be there wasn't a God. This was the very most common theory that the, all the philosophers, the ancient you know, scientists, the physicists, this is what they believed in. Even from the days of the ancient Greek philosophers. The proof for this was, look at the constellations. The constellations, have they been changing in the past thousand years? We see them in the same spot, more or less. So which means is, that the, being that we see the stars in the same, more or less same spot, that means the universe existed for the same amount for, for, a, you know, for, for all eternity. Dr. Gerald Schroeder points out that in, as of 1959, pretty recent, as of 1959, two-thirds of U.S. astronomers and physicists believed in this theory. They believe that the universe had no beginning. It always was and it always will be. However, in the recent years, there was a traumatic turnaround that all of a sudden, the majority of the scientists, the physicists, anybody that, that delves in this, in this study saw and, and came to the conclusion that the universe had to have a beginning. That was, so that was theory number one. Theory number one is the universe always was. Then there's theory number two. Theory number two is called the oscillating universe or the cosmic balloon. This, this, this theory says that the universe expands 
and then implodes. So it explodes and then implodes upon himself. And it does this again and again. Now, how would this work? So, we know that there's something called gravity. The gravity depends on mass. So if you would be living, if your body would be living in, let's say, for example, Jupiter, then your, 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 uh, your weight is going to be significantly greater because Jupiter is much bigger, which we'll soon see. Jupiter's a man. If you are in the moon, your, your, your weight is much, gravity is much, is much uh, lighter and lower. Uh, this is why if you really want to go on a diet, no need to you know, eat anything. Just travel to the moon and weigh yourself there and then come back because you'll be significantly lighter. The, so there's something called a gravitational attraction. So something that is larger in mass has a greater gravitational attraction. You know, that's where they make, you know, your mama jokes. You know, I remember this from, from growing up. You know, it's like, your mama is so fat or whatever, so big that she has, you know, planet, you know, they have, she has people orbiting around her. Because what happens is, when you have a, when you have a large mass, then it, it, it attracts. It attracts, uh, you know, not just cake. It attracts, okay. it attracts, it attracts being. I'm talking about large masses, right? Large, uh, you know, like planets, stars, things like that. So, the... The way that this theory works is that the world is expanding, the universe is expanding. And being that the expansion eventually is going to slow down, because you know, as time goes on, it's going to slow down. And then what happens is, is there are going to be, there's so many large planets, there's so many large stars that have tremendous gravitational pull. So soon they're going to start pulling other planets towards them. And eventually it's going to be, the pull is going to go so much so that it's going to all collapse upon itself. And that is the implosion. And then when it all collapses upon itself, then it's going to go into a big, big, big bang again. And it's going to explode again. So it makes sense. So this could happen, you know, you know, for a long period of time. If for every few billion years, it would expand. And then eventually the gravitational pressure, you know, pull will pull it together. And it would, you know, implode again. And then back and forth, you know, until, you know, whenever. Make sense so far? Okay. So, and according to that theory... The universe has, if that's what they believe in, the way that we exist right now, according to this theory, is between the big, so the big, there's a big crunch and the big bang. We exist between the big crunch and the big bang. That's when, when you can exist. Then everything gets destroyed, and then, you know, voila, new world, new universe. That's number two. Number three is something called the open universe. The open universe is a cosmic balloon that never implodes. It never comes crashing down. Which means is that it's gonna always expand. It will just keep on expanding and it keep on growing. That is a, that, so those are the three. From the third, the third brings to it some, some questions. That if there's something that is expanding, that means that it was at once, you know, very close together or very, you know, compact. Then where did this, you know, why, why did this, you know, matter suddenly decide to expand? There's something called the law of inertia. The law of inertia is an object at rest should remain at rest unless acted upon external force. At easy, very simplified manner, I have this cup of water over here. This cup of water should stay on the table unless it's moved by something else. It could be moved by an earthquake. It could be moved by my hand, taking a drink as such. <laughs> it could be moved by a variety of different reasons, but it will stay at rest unless it's moved. If something's at rest, it has to stay at rest unless it is, it is, it is something is, is, is moving it from an external force. The question is, is that if all matter was combined in one little space, then why did it suddenly expand? What gave it that thing? Was it a supernatural, maybe? Or a su- you know, something that's, that's maybe on a spiritual... Where did it come from? How is it possible that matter, that mass, that is all combined into one thing, suddenly just start, decides to expand? Now, if you want to say that it was unstable, so even if you... So if it's unstable, say, listen, it was unstable, and then it came. So who created the matter? Where did the matter come from? It had to come from something. There is a law... Um, which we'll speak about, what is it called? It's the law of the conservation of mass, if I'm not mistaken. Right? The law of conservation of mass means that mass cannot neither be created nor destroyed. 
we don't believe in spontaneous, you know, generation of, of mass. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. That, you know, it, it's against the laws of nature. Where did this, where did this mass come from? You're saying that the, that you, this has to be very clear. If we're dealing with the Big Bang Theory, that it, the world is expanding, where was the initial, who created the initial thing? It had to be come from somewhere. It can, it couldn't have been there forever. And it, because there was a beginning. If there was a beginning, so there's a lot of different factors that according to science leads to, to very problematic things. So let's try to figure out, before we're dealing with that, what is the correct method of that? We have three options over here. We had a static universe, which is always existing. We had, it exist, we had a universe that implodes and, and you know, explodes, goes in and out. And then we had a thing that's open, that just keeps on growing. So which one is the correct one? In 1925, a person by the name of Edward Hubble, he was an American astronomer working at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California. He was viewing the largest telescope in the world, and he revealed, similar to, you know, Slifer that we mentioned uh, earlier, that every galaxy within 100 million light years, that's a, that's a long, that's a long distance, long trip, every galaxy with 100 million light years of Earth was receding. Now, Einstein, when he heard about this, he refused to believe in it. And he continued to teach for the next five years his theory, which was, that the universe always existed. Static state. Everything was always, was always as, as it was. And until Hubble eventually said, hey listen, you know, Albert, or Alberto, I don't know how you call him. He <laughs> says, uh, why don't you do me a favor? Come down to California. Look at yourself at the evidence. Look at the, you know, look at it. You know, you don't believe me. Come look at it. So, Einstein went and he traveled from Berlin to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to where Edward Hubble was in Pasadena. And he went to examine the evidence. And after the trip finished, after the conclusion of this trip, Einstein reluctantly admitted that the general structure of the universe is not static and it has to be expanding. Because that's what the, you know, that's what it's leaning to. So, here we're coming towards, leaning towards the fact that the universe, the way that we see it, according to scientifically, had to be that it was through the Big Bang, that it was, you know, expanding. If the universe indeed was initially very hot and condensed, like we said it, then we should be able to find some remnant of heat existing in the, you know, in the universe. So, in 1965, radio astronomers by the name of Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson discovered a 2.725 degree Kelvin cosmic microwave background radiation, which is sort of like, they, wherever they pointed their instrument, they found the same sort of background radiation. Which means is, is that according to science, if the, if the Big Bang actually happened, according to they say, then they should be able to see some sort of remnants of heat. They found it in 1965. So as in 1965, they found it, and it took some time, but in 1978, they, these two people actually won the Nobel Prize in, for physics for their discoveries. So now, we know for sure that the static model is, is not in existence. It, it, it doesn't work that way, that the universe always existed. It had to be a beginning. But there's two options. Is it that the universe always is always going to expand? Maybe it could still be that it's going to expand and it's going to explode again. And it's going to implode again and, exp and expand again. Go close and close and go out. So far, so good. You guys are with me so far, right? Simple. It, it's uh, pretty clear, right? Okay. So now, we have to determine scientifically if it is possible that the universe would, ex would implode upon itself. Now, how are you going to do that? You're going to do that by finding out and figuring out the density of the universe. I'm not going to get into it uh, too much because the time is getting late and I want to move on. But if, and if you want afterwards, we could explain this more. If there is an equivalent of one, of about one hydrogen atom per 10 cubic feet of space, 
then the universe will be able to implode upon itself. That means the universe is dense enough that it will be able to pull the gravitational pressure upon itself, uh, the gravitational pull, and it will, it will eventually pull everything together and explode into itself, implode. However, if the universe contains less than this density, then the gravitational pull is not going to be strong enough, and it will, it will go out at infinity. It will keep on expanding of the universe. Between 1965 and 1978, uh, those 12 years, the scientists attempted to determine the average density of the universe. And time in and time again, it came in that it was less than one hydrogen atom per 10 cubic feet of space. Which means is, according to that, that study, that the universe will never implode upon itself. And in fact, in 1978, Dr. Robert Jastrow, director of National Aeronautics and Space Administrations, came out with an historic announcement. And he said that the total weight of the universe is still more than 10 times too small to bring an expansion to a halt, which means is that the third model is correct. And the crowd went wild. No, I'm kidding. Um, it was a bunch of scientists, so they were probably like, you know, yes, you know. Yeah, okay. So, um, in any case, they, they came into the understanding, and this is where, this is where the proof leads scientifically that the world had to, you know, had to have a beginning and it's continuously expanding. Now I want to read to you something from, from Dr. Stephen Hawking. You guys know Dr. Stephen Hawking? Yeah. Fairly famous. Okay. In 1988, he was, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, a mathematician and a theoretical physicist at Cambridge University, confirmed the findings of Jastrow. And he said, and he writes like this, I'm going to quote, Many people do not like the idea that time had a beginning, probably because it smacks of divine intervention. Nonetheless, the present evidence suggests that the universe will probably expand forever. Which means, is over here, that we see from here that the universe had to have a beginning. The reason why this is such a problem to many atheists is that the universe had to have a beginning, it had to have a beginner. It just makes common sense. The laws of nature, the laws of science, the laws that you so strongly hold by, show it that there had to be a beginning, there has to be a creator. Okay, so now there was, a, there was something very unbelievable uh, article <laughs> that was written in uh, the time that it, it was, uh, there was an astronomer by the name of Carl Sagan that he announced that there are two important criteria for a planet to support life. Two. That's what he came out with. This is what you're talking about years ago. Number one, it has to be a right kind of star. Number two, the planet has to be a right distance from that star. If you have those two criteria, that planet could support life. So, we know that there is trillions of galaxies in the universe. You multiply that by the billions of stars in each galaxy, a very large number. Now, if we could figure out roughly how many, how many planets are in the universe, you could say roughly, I'm talking about specifically planets, not stars, uh, planets, it's about an octillion planets. Octillion is one followed by 27 zeros. Think about that in your bank account for a second. Right? <laughs> one followed by 27 zeros. Now, according to this theory, according to this understanding that there is two criteria, two criteria that should support life, that means we should have about a septillion, which is one by followed by 24 zeros, planets of supporting life. That's a lot of planets supporting life, right? That, that is a lot, a lot of planets supporting life. So, with such amazing odds, in the 1960s, there was a search for extraterrestrial intelligence came out. And this was not only private funds, but it was also public, publicly funded projects. The government actually funded these projects based on these odds, according to the scientifically proven, 
it seems that there should be tons of extraterrestrial life. Because if there's other planets that could support life, that means there are other life in other planets. So let's go and find these other life. So they went and they started searching in 1960s. And they listened with their radio telescopes for signals, anything that's possibly resembled something intelligent. And for years and years they listened, and it came out with a resounding silence. Nothing. Nothing in the universe. And they didn't understand. Why is it, if, the, if, if there's so much chance of there being more life on other planets, where is all the life? Congress, by 1993, defunded this, this project. They said, you know, we're not paying for this anymore, there's something wrong. Now, why did they defund it? In fact, this, this project actually continued. It continued through private funds. And as of 1914, I'm sorry, as of 2014, a few years ago, you know how many, you know, what the researchers discovered? Absolutely zeroed, followed by many, many more zeros. They found nothing. There's nothing. Now, why? If the numbers make that. They found out that there are far more factors than Sagan originally said in order to support life. And the way that it works mathematically is the number originally said there was two factors that you need for a planet to support life. Eventually, those two turn into 10, and that 10 turn into 20 factors. That 20 factors turn into 50 factors. Now, every time that the, there are more factors that come into play, the probability, statistically speaking, the amount of planets that would support life would go down. Make sense? As, uh, you know, okay. So, until it hit a point, which, as of today, there are more than 200 known parameters for a planet to support life. Now, it's not just like two parameters, hit some, make some, that will support life. Every single one of these parameters must be met perfectly, or the whole thing falls apart. So by then, you know, Congress said, you know, like, but, you know, the evidence that we have, we're, 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 you know, we're burning money like we do many other things. I don't think they said that, but I'm saying that. But, you know, that they defunded it. So it's not worth it to spend money on this because it's, it's very, it's not only it's unlikely to do that, I'll give you even more. For the fact for the Earth to exist, you need to have a massive planet like Jupiter nearby. Why do we need Jupiter nearby? Jupiter, we said, is very, very large. And it has a very, very strong gravitational pull. This Jupiter pulls away all the asteroids, all these meteors that go towards Earth the Jupiter pulls it away from Earth. If Jupiter wouldn't be there, there would be thousands of more the, of these asteroids that would hit Earth's surface and would be destroyed. So there's so many factors that have to come into play. You know how so many factors? That there are so many factors. You know what are the probability of them exi- of, an, of, a pla- of a planet that could support life exists in the universe? Zero. Which means there's... Like, we, don't e- we shouldn't even exist over here. According to scientifically speaking, probability, and statistically speaking, we should not be here. It makes no sense that we're here. There are so many factors that have to come out exactly to the point for order not, for, in order for us to exist. It's like taking a coin and tossing it 10 quintillion times and falling every single time with heads. You know, like, what are the chances, what are the odds of that actually happening? Fred Hoyle was an astronomer who coined the term the Big Bang. He says like this. He says that his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Theoretical physicist Paul Davis. By the way, I'm not bringing you rabbis who are saying that the world... I'm giving you, you know, for a reason, these, and I'm telling you who they are. A theoretical physicist by the name of Paul Davis said, The appearance of design is overwhelming. The appearance of the world... Ha- a design implies a designer. Oxford professor Dr. John Lennox said... That the more, and I'm quote, the more we know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we're here. Again, not rabbis. You know what the greatest miracle of all time? 
the universe. The fact that we exist is the greatest miracle of all time. But let's say, okay, let's speak math. Let's speak a little bit of mathematics. Now, given enough tries over a longer period of time, there must be some sort of probability that something becomes likely. The Robert Shapiro, a professor of chemistry at the NYU at New York University, he uh, studied the odds of winning uh, the lottery. So let's say the odds of winning the lottery are, could be, let's say, 10 million to 1. But if, let's say, you were to buy a lottery ticket every single day for the next 30,000 years, the chances of you winning would be significantly higher. So what are the, what is the numbers that of the universe actually happening, all these parameters for Earth to exist as it exists, like maybe after billions, trillions, whatever, like Google amount of years, maybe there is a probability. So let's look at it. So physicist Stephen Hawking writes like this. He says monkeys that are hammering away typewriters, right? They're just, they're just like smacking typewriters. Most of what they'll come out will be pure and utterly garbage. So far, I agree with him. But then he says, some, but very occasionally, and by pure chance, they will type out one of Shakespeare's sonnets, one of Shakespeare's, uh, you know, poems. So, Dr. Gerald Schroeder, you know, he has a, you know, a book called The Genesis and the Big Bang. Phenomenal. He uh, writes like this. He wanted to calculate the odds of monkeys typing on a typewriter. What are the odds of them producing this sonnet in one of Shakespeare of Shakespeare's sonnets? So he took a, you know, random sonnet. There are 488 letters in the sonnet. That's not a lot of letters, right? 488. What is the chance of somebody typing in these 488 letters in the right order, in the, in the right time? So he said that the chances of this is, the mathematical probability of this is, is 1 in 10 to the, to the power of 690. Now, for most of us, be like, cool. What is that number? You know, like, we, you know, like, I don't know, I have a scientific calculator, I just write the arrow up, and whatever number comes out. Is that a big number? So let me explain to you the number. 15 billion years. You know how many seconds are in 15 billion years? It's gonna be a lot, right? It's gonna be a, a, a little bit more than a lot. Yeah, it is gonna be an answer. In 15 billion years, the amount of seconds that you have in there is gonna be 10 to the 18th power. What I said is the chance of monkeys, according to Gerald Scholder, the of them typing these 488 letters is 1 in 10 to the 690th power. You know what the chances of that is? That means that if you take all the monkeys in the world ever existed, throw in every other animal, every other unit, every other being that ever existed, and then make them all type and typewriters randomly, from all the iron, not in the world, in the universe... Over a period of time that exceeds their, you know, 15 billion years, 20 billion years, the chances that they would come out with a Shakespeare sonnet will be still extremely low. So when you're telling me that the chances of the world coming to, into creation is like, could be. Really? Really? If I were to show you, and this is Rabbeinu Bachai, it says in the Chovot Avot, in the Duties of the Heart, if you take a piece of paper and... We're not even talking about a painting. Take a piece of paper, let's say. And you go, you present this piece of paper to someone and say, like, uh, you like this article? And be like, yeah, it's, you know, very intelligent. He says, who wrote it? <laughs> so funny thing was, I was, I have a bottle of ink. And, you know, the ink was on my table. And I was, you know, trying to get a, you know, piece of a napkin cloth under it. And I took it. And the ink spilled. And this is what came out. What would anybody say, say to that person? Be like, I have somebody that I would like you to meet. He may or not or may not be wearing a white lab coat, but I still think that you should meet him because it doesn't make any sense. That is, if if you go for a painting, right? Any take that painting over there, right? Beautiful painting of flowers and a flower pot, right? 
What are the chances? I know modern art, this is how it works. You just spill paint and you're both. <laughs> wow, what is this? For the concept of this is a dot of the universe, an infinite, it means nothing. Ten billion dollars, I'll buy it. <laughs> okay, and, you know, can you please commit suicide, my dear artist, so it'll be worth more. Um, but let's say you take this painting. You take this painting over here. What are the chances that this painting, a simple flower pot that was, that was put into it, you know, with, with flowers, that you just spilled stuff and it just came into it? Very, very unlikely. So to say that the universe came by fair chance and still be sane, I don't find that, that, that. You cannot be sane and say the same thing. Like, think of the numbers. Think of the probability. It leads towards one thing. And let's see. Dr. Paul Davis, he says something like this. And I'm going to quote. The really amazing thing is not that life on earth is balanced on a knife edge. He says the entire universe is balanced on a knife edge. And it would be total chaos if anything constant would change off even slightly. To say this all happened by size, which means is the size of the earth, the location of the earth, the location of the sun, the location of Jupiter. There's so many factors that have to come play exactly where it is in order for us to exist. And to say that it all happened by chance, not normal. Really not normal. Dr. Den- uh, Dr. Dennis Scania says like this, if you change a little bit of the laws of nature, or you change a little bit of the constants of nature, like changing like the charge of electron, we'll soon see what Dr. Uh, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking says as well, it is very likely that intelligent life would not be, would have not been able to develop. Dr. David Deutsch says like this, if anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he is hiding his head in the sand. Stephen Hawking, listen to this, he says like this, he says the value, the, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers they, which is referring to the constants of physics, seem to have been very, very finely adjusted to make possible. And Hawking goes and continues, and he says, if the electrical charge of an electron had been slightly different, stars would have not been able to burn hydrogen and helium, or else they would have not exploded. He says everything had to be in such particular and exact to the dot, to, to, the, to, the, to the minuscule electron, had to be exactly what it is. To say that it all happened by chance, possible, but not probable. You know what a probable explanation is? That there was some other being that put it into place. There was something, a design implies a designer. Which means is, that if you look at, someone comes over to you, and says, uh, um, and by the way, Stephen Hawking then goes on to say, and that he can appreciate taking this as a possible evidence. He writes possible. For me, it's not possible, it's probable. Evidence of a divine purpose in creation. I think they, many people say, I don't know if it's true or not, that he's one of the smartest people, you know, alive. He is, uh, you know, eh, okay. I mean, I have a few people that I would say go, you know, way over him, but whatever. You know, this is not the, not the discussion or the forum for it. But he, the, if you think of the way that the universe is, this, thank you, this doesn't show a possible chance of what were to happen by, by, you know, just by chance. It shows a probable chance that most likely there is a creator. You want to believe, not realize that you're dealing with emotions, not with logic. People come over to me and they say, um, you know, in the argument, the Big Bang. You know, like I come, like, oh yeah, you believe in God? No, I believe in the Big Bang. Do you know the Big Bang? Because the Big Bang points to God. If you look at the Big Bang, there has to be, if you think about it, the laws of nature, there's, there has to be points. Think of it like this. If you're saying there was a beginning, there had to, if, the, 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 if there's an expansion, that means there has to be a beginning. If there was a beginning, then who created the mass? The mass has to come from somewhere. Right? We know there's law of inertia, the law of conservation of energy, of mass, I'm sorry. Which means is that mass cannot just be created at, from nowhere. It has to be created from something. Where did it come from? And if the Big Bang was there, who made it expand? Where did all this information come from? 
according to science, it points to something supernatural. They don't know what the answer is. They might not. Say, they might say, "Okay, listen. You know, it's it, you know we don't know yet, and that's how we're going to find out." As of now, where does it point to? It points to something else, and I'll tell you what it points to. It points to a creator. It points to that. If, so, if you look at science, if you look at the way that the, the way it works, it, it's it's so obvious. We're just scratching the surface. We're going to go. We're going to speak Bezalel Shem about evolution. We speak about a lot of other things, important, very interesting things. Uh, Bezalel Shem in the coming classes, but we see over here that all this points to one thing and it points to God. You want to believe not? Like that physicist said, you're putting your hand in the sand. Uh, rephrasing us, you know, a little bit. Okay, <laughs> that was the end of the class. I want to show you some slides and then we're going to open up the questions. Um, this PowerPoint. PowerPoint, but it's, you know, it's a shame because, uh, you know, the screen doesn't work so I'm going to have to show you on my laptop. So I'll zoom in a little bit for the people in the audience in the, in the other world, in the virtual world. Um, this is this is just the Big Bang. And this was sort of like a review of what we're you know what we spoke about. So this is basically the the idea of the Big Bang. This is what the singularity. You see, like everything, the mass was everything was was created in this little dot, and then it slowly expands. And you see, as as it goes on, this is the universe, the galaxies. As it goes on, the universe goes on and expands more and more. Um, here we see this is actually Edward Hubble, uh, Edwin Hubble. I'm sorry. Um, this is looking through his uh, telescope into uh, you know finding that the galaxies are uh, actually receding in in uh, in life. The, then we showed that there was some proof. We brought proof that this theory is actually seems to be the correct proof. We brought it with co- a cosmic microwave microwave background um, with the recession of galaxies um, and uh, a few other things as well. Now, this is very important. If the universe has a finite size and a node shape. That's what we know so far. This is this is the universe summaries. This, by the way, is scientifically. This is not uh, um, you know my own uh, theories or understanding of it. So, if the universe has a finite size and a known shape, then it, therefore it must have a finite age. Now they say, okay, there's going to be a certain, and therefore there must have been a beginning. If there's a beginning, we we'll lead to another thing that there is a, uh, there's a uh, there's a creator. And here again, we speak about the evidence. We also spoke about the density that. The universe, if it would have been more dense, it could have collapsed upon itself. But we said that it's not. It's not more dense, and hence it's going to expand, um, you know, forever. This here's the interesting part. So here, if you can see this, this is the size of, you know, the, our planets. So you see little Earth over here. This is this is little Earth going on over here. Um, and as you can see, this is you know Pluto, and then it goes on, on and we'll, we'll soon see. Um, you look at Neptune. You look at the look at the sheer difference in size. Look at the difference between Jupiter and Earth. There are. Um, 1,321 Earths that could fit inside Jupiter. Imagine the real estate value, right? Okay. So, when you, and this is just, you know, this is if you go in it, this is the Earth going to, you know, closer to the sun, this is further away. But you look at over here, you see you have your Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, and then you have uh, Jupiter at the size. Big, right? Jupiter is big. Let's look at it a little bit different. And I'm, I'm bringing this for a particular purpose. Here's Earth. You see a little dot? You guys can see it from there? Okay, you see that little dot? That's Earth. This is Jupiter, that's our sun. The our sun. There are, there are, yeah. There are 1.3 million Earths that can fit in our sun. The sun is pretty big, right? Is a big place. Not a good place to go, is it? <laughs> but it's big. Let's go on. This are other stars. That's our sun. You see that little dot that you can't see? That's Jupiter. Uh, that's called Arcturus. Oh, we're not. That's not the biggest one. And as we go on, so you look at the difference. This is what exists in the in the universe. You see the difference in these sizes. Um, you see that little dot. What? Yeah, always of course. You see that little dot, which you can't really see. That's the sun. This is something called Betelgeuse. 
<laughs> I don't, it's, it's not like that. The, the, the sheer, and by the way, this is not the largest, uh, the, the largest star. The largest star that we know is something called the, um, I think it's called the XY uh, Canis Majoris or something like that. Oh, the, no, the VY Canis Majoris. This fits 9.3 billion suns in it. That's how large it is. Do you, you know the sheer size of that thing? We can't understand. We said 1.3 million Earths fit inside the sun. 9.3 billion suns fit, in, fit inside the largest planet. The, the size of the universe is unbelievable. This is where we see, this is our, this is our solar system. And you can see the difference. So look at you know the sun, which is the largest. You, you know, look at that. You, you can barely see it. Most of it is just empty, empty space. When you go on, this is uh, this is uh, you know um, this is actually the galaxy. This is the Milky Way. Every dot is not a star. It could be like actually could be a cluster of stars. But we'll, let's go on a little bit uh, uh, further. And here, look, our solar system in this huge galaxy is that tiny thing. Now we said how big the star, the, the sun is. You can't even see it in the, in you know, when you're looking at the galaxy from the, from the Milky Way, from this, uh, from this depth. Just to show you what we're talking about, how vast the universe is according to science. Here, you look at this. This is also the Milky Way. The Milky Way, if you want to know the width of it, it's 100,000 light years. That's very far and very big. The approximate location of the sun is like here. You know, like you can't even like you know we're like you can't even see it, and the sun is huge. And you can't even see it. That's how large the, the universe uh, is. And besides that, this is just one galaxy. There is billions of other galaxies in the universe. You're talking about the sheer size that you, you can't even uh, um, you know, understand it. The speed of light, if anybody wants. Uh, I mean, I don't like this. This is, this is 300,000 uh, kilometers per second. Um, we'll speak about it more. The speed of light, we're going to speak about more in evolution. Or the age of the universe, we'll speak about more about the speed of light. So we'll get, get into that. Um, the <clears throat> this is something very interesting. If you want to go to the nearest galaxy, it will take you two over two million light years away in order just to get to the next to the next galaxy. Now I'm bringing all these things in order to show you this the the sheer size of the universe. Each this is uh, this is the universe, right? So you look at this picture. This picture is the universe. The each point of light is a galaxy supercluster. A supercluster is a group of galaxies. So each light is a group of galaxies. You understand that we, we can't even comprehend the size of this thing. And this is the observable uh, universe. Now, if I could show you something really cool. Let's see if I'll be able to pull it up over here. Um, it's such a shame that we don't have the large... And then we'll open up the questions. This um, is something very interesting that I found. Um, and we're not going to go through... We'll do it really quick so we can get to the questions. This is... I'm not... I, I apologize for the... You know, I can't... Yeah, whatever. Okay, I'll pick it up. All right. So... Here, look at this thing. So this, let us start for um, something like... This is something very, very cool that I found. Um, Okay, this is the size of animals. Okay, not the most modest. Okay, Um, this is the size of the animals. And look at, you see as we go further away, you see the size of the, you know, the Eiffel Tower. You see this is the largest (laughs) building. Um, And then you have mountains. These are all relative in size, right? This, just make... You're going to feel tiny after this, right? No need for diets. Just look at yourself over here and be like, what? I'm tiny. So now, look at this. So as you go further, and I'm having a hard time seeing it. So here we see, uh, what is this? Washington, D.C. And, that, and, the, and the bottom part of it. Here we have, Israel made it on the map. Wow. 
Look at that. They put Israel over here. And here's Pluto. Pluto is a small is a small planet. And you know, as you go on, and there you see Earth compared to it. Here's Neptune compared to that. You see this. You see the sizes of things. There's Jupiter. Then there's our, our other stars. And so you can see the sun. You see the sun compared to to uh, uh, you know to our Earth. You can't even see it. And as we go on and more. And here are, you can't even, these are other stars. You can't even see our sun, which is so much bigger than our Earth, that when you're looking at our sun, you can't even see our Earth. That, just look at the, the, the sheer size of things. And as we go on, and we don't have the time, maybe afterwards, and my hand's not hurting me so much, as we go further, but just look at how far it goes out. Just look at what we're talking about. And each one, you're talking about galaxies and super galaxies and that. You know, you're talking about, you know, something, you know, phenomenal. And by the way, what's really cool is if you take this all the way down to the end, it speaks about it, not only as that, we think of ourselves, but you look at it into, where are we? Into a molecular level. Wow. So, oh, and you can't, right, and you, as you go, you know, smaller from like a biology level and you go wow. out, it's something so phenomenal of, of where we are. So now, why did I, you know, waste my time with this PowerPoint putting together, which really was a waste of time, to be honest. I don't know if it was worth it. Uh, you don't know how much time it took me to put that together. Uh, not the last thing, but the PowerPoint, yeah. So, um, so, I'll, I'll show, yeah, I'll send it to you, no problem. So now, when you have, when you, when you realize how tiny we are in existence, how infinitely tiny and nothing we are into existence, and we yet exist in such a you know, understanding that we can only exist only if everything else around us is working exactly the way it is. Which means is that God put everything into into place so that we can exist where we exist. A tiny little, and we know that, you know, for one person, for doing a good deed, for doing that, it was really worth it for God to create this entire universe. When we look up in the stars, do you ever thankful that, wow, look, you know, look what God did, look at the beauty of it. You know, you study a little bit of these astronomy or whatever it is, the sheer amount of, of stuff that is there is so unbelievable. You come to appreciate, it, be like, God, you good. Uh, you know, this is cool. This is something that we cannot understand. And we we come to think of it like, yeah, happened by sheer chance. Are you serious? Are you like serious? You must not know it because if you know it, I don't see how somebody with common knowledge and common sense. And please, if somebody's out there has answers, I'm I'm always I'm always up for like other interpretations of things. I would gladly hear. A lot of this thing that we spoke about today was a lot of focus on scientific things. Maybe I got something wrong. I'm open to hear suggestions of anything else. But from my understanding of it and from my studying on it, it's, you don't even look, need to look any further. You look at the signs that proves towards God. Any questions? I'm sure there's tons. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I really want to see. Yeah. Um, how do we know about everything past all the planets? Like, are they actually visible, or are they? So um, the way that okay, so if there's going to be a lot of scientific stuff, I'm gonna we'll, we'll try to answer it to the best of my knowledge. Um, the way that we know it is through well, we have t- we have besides we have spaceships that take pictures um, from, and not like you know like. You know, my phone has like a 16 megapixel camera with a low aperture, you know, like, you know, really good low lighting. You're talking about, you know, billion dollar, you know, cameras that are taking these pictures and, you know, based it off, I don't know exactly, but they have a bunch of different systems that they go on and they're able to, um, to observe these, uh, these things and they're able to see from extremely, extremely far distance. Is there actually a point to all these? We would assume so, um, but we don't know. Like uh, scientifically speaking, we know that that our solar system there needs to be the way that it is for it for us to exist. For many things need to be like the Jupiter, but to say other galaxies and other that, the science uh, you know need it. There's definitely a reason that God created it. 
So but the, God created something for it, it, even a reason of just appreciating it is you know of, of that. We also know that you know that um, you know Hashem told Avraham that look at the stars you're going to be like you know like your stars are going to be like which is you know phenomenal because the stars go on and on for a very long time. There's there's lots of them. We're not many as the stars. We're not like. <laughs> you're saying there's not a lot of Jews. Yeah, there isn't. Well, there. Uh, when, when well, okay. I wasn't. I wasn't sure where you're going with that. Yeah, so I was. Quite, I was just that. finishing for you to that that uh, thing. Okay. Alita <laughs> finished it for me. <laughs> it happens to be that unfortunately we should have a lot of Jews, but you know. I always thought that he was talking to Abraham and saying Abraham's all of his children. Yeah, very possible. But by the same idea, there should be very very large amount of Jews. That's happens to be we lost a lot, unfortunately, and we lose a lot to intermarriage, we lose a lot, you know, pogroms, you know, Holocaust, we, you know, we should be larger than, you know, Chinese. But at least we're still worldwide known. I mean, Baruch Hashem. we're in the news. You know, they ask people, um, you know, if you ask some person that doesn't know anything about, like, that, you ask them how many Jews are there in the world, they're not going to tell you 13 million. They're going to be like, I don't know, a billion? They're like, nope, we're like tiny, we're nothing. But like, well, how are you guys always in the news? Be like, oh, we own the pit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and, uh, um, because, you know, you know, not that we make a lot of noise, but uh, Baruch Hashem, you know, hopefully it should be only good things in the news. Amen, amen, seriously, because <laughs> yeah. I've heard really bad stuff. Um, anyways, if you're an, an, an uh, agnostic, do you still have, like, a share in the world? Because you're sort of believing, but not really. The Rambam brings down, in Hilochot Shuvah, there are certain people who have no share in the world to come. If, one of them is that you have to believe in God, not that you have, not the negative. It's the positive. If you, which means that so you need to believe in God. If you say I partially believe in God, just means that you're just uncertain about stuff, uncertain about life. So it, you know, it really depends on where. There's some people that call themselves like Nazis, but really believe. They'll pray. All of a sudden, they're in a, a certain area. You know, may or not rhyme with Brownsville, and um, they'll all of a sudden they'll be like. Dear God, you know, like, please get me out of here alive. Right, so, like, if they say they don't believe, but deep, deep inside they do. So that depends also on their actions and different things. Only God knows. That's not something that we can, uh, you know, answer. Okay. Is there more atheists nowadays than there was ever before? Because I feel like there is... You know, I believe so. I believe so. There is a lot of atheists. You're getting, I think, close to a billion atheists in the world. Cool. Not uncool, very uncool. No, I mean, it's like, I don't really right. them. They think they're so cool. Right. I happen, to, I happen to think that atheists don't really know that they're atheists. They don't really understand right. that they're atheists. Uh, that's my personal belief. Um, there's some really arrogant atheists that really hold to it, and I don't know how they can believe that. Like, uncertainty, yeah. How can you know for certain? I, I really, it doesn't make sense to me. Them. Like, I feel like they're they probably do. They're lying to themselves. It's possible. That's my opinion. It's possible. I mean, look, you look at you look at the world. It just and we're gonna see. We're gonna speak about like so many different things. Oh, you gotta be blind not to see that there's some sort of designer. Yeah. But for us, when we say that there's, there's, it's most probable that there's a god, or we're just straight up 100. We know 100 percent that there's a god. You ask me, I know 100. percent I don't have a doubt. Like maybe just the tip of the iceberg of. Of actually seeing that there is a God, eventually Bezalel Shem will have you'll have so much information that you'll be like, without a doubt, but like for sure, for sure there's a God. <laughs> she just raised her hand. Um, I have a question. Okay, you know how they always say like the world is billions of years old, and like the galaxies and all the other stars and planets and stuff. How do we understand that based on the fact that like the world is almost six thousand? We're gonna speak about that. 
Is it like during the time that God created the world? There's, it's, a, it's a long thing. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to dedicate a whole class to it or half a class to it. But we're going to speak about the age of universe as well. We're going to speak about evolution, the age of universe, how do we consolidate things? Oh, I'm telling you, I'm very excited for this series. It's awesome. So it's so, it's so awesome. I have another question. Yeah. Like, you know how we say that God exists without a doubt? How do we know that, like, Judaism... Ah, that's the second, that's the second part of the series. Once we, once we go through this, we're going to go and prove the Torah. Gonna smack it out of the ballpark. We're like, everyone's yeah. There's a theory that's saying that God created the world and He just like did it, and then He'd be like, okay, next project. You know, <laughs> let's work on something else. So we will speak about that in uh, I'm not sure which class to show that the fact that God still oversees the world. We, I mean, the simple answer is you look at you know the Exodus, and that's what really the purpose of that being of, of you know a very big purpose of that was. But we'll speak about it more in depth. That shows that not only God created the world. But God continuously to runs it. And if we don't speak about it, we should. You know, I, I really have to write it down to make sure that I do bring that down. But uh, there's many times that we see that it's pretty obvious that someone's not only created the world, but also supervising the world. Any other questions? You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.